Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, a quarterly financial podcast hosted by Tandem President and Founder John Carew, with additional commentary provided by Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson. Hello and welcome everybody to Tandem Talk 5, the Tandem Podcast. I'd like to just thank all of you listeners for your dedication. We are truly blown away by the number of people that are listening to us, either through our website or on SoundCloud. And in the future, you might be able to search any other place you get a podcast and find us there, but that's not an announcement yet. This is John Carew, your host of Tandem Talk. I am joined by the investment team here at Tandem, as always, Billy Little. Hello, everyone. Ben Carew. Hey, how's it going? And Jordan Watson. Hey. Jordan Watson, by the way, will shortly be a newly minted CFA. We just learned this week that he passed level three. He is the third member of the tandem team to reach this level of prestige. I'm the lone member with no initials after my name. Congratulations, Jordan. Thank you. Okay, I think we've got some good topics. A lot has happened since we last convened in May. And so I've got four broad topics to throw at you guys, and you guys take them where you will. Um, I want to talk about what is happening inside of tandem portfolios. I want to talk about what's happening in the market beyond tandem portfolios. I'd like to have the what I think is just a fun conversation of what's happening in the world beyond the market. And then lastly, I'd like to introduce the segment that I will call your one big thing. Um, so and then we'll wrap it up. But let's kick off with what's happening inside of Tandem Portfolios. And before we do that, I wanna highlight what my friend and partner Billy Little said in his monthly column observations in June of this year. He wrote that it is evident that building a portfolio from the top down seems increasingly difficult these days. Rather than spending a significant amount of time trying to figure out what side of the style box to over and underweight, there's something to be said for owning a portfolio of individual businesses that can consistently grow through any economic cycle. Ownership of well-run companies whose products and or services are always needed and are not dependent on the economic environment affords you the ability not to have to throw darts at the style box. I think that speaks volumes as to who we are. We don't come to work every morning trying to fit into one of the nine boxes inside the style box. We have an investment discipline that we are all believers in. We've got 30 years of doing this. Not all of you have been here for 30 years, much less on the planet Earth for 30 years, but Tandem's been doing this for 30 years. We know who we are and we know how we go about doing it. So I thought to kick off this segment of what's going on inside of Tandem Portfolios, we could start generally first with just a review of our process and our model, just broadly speaking. Who wants to, who wants to tackle that? I think I can tackle that, and uh, I think I'll struggle to say it better than, than Billy did in observations, but I'll give it a shot. So our process really starts with our quantitative model, and it tries to identify companies that can grow regardless of what's going on in the economy. That means that these companies should be able to grow their business through the financial crisis, through a pandemic, through the bursting of the tech bubble, all of those things. If you're able to identify those less economically cyclical or economically sensitive 
companies. You're sort of able to build a portfolio that should be able to survive all environments rather than just this environment or that environment. I think the only other thing I'd add is that we really think it's our job to buy low and sell high, and that doesn't always happen at the same time. And today it just seems like there happens to be more things to sell than to buy. I think that's well said. Um, Anything to add to that, guys? The only thing I would add is the role that cash does play in our portfolio. We do not have a mandate to be fully invested at any given time. Um, if there are more stocks to sell than, the, than there are to buy, cash goes up. More stocks to buy than to sell, cash goes down. It's, it's really that simple. Um, but one of the most important things with the cash is that it's there to be able to take advantage of opportunities, the most recent being uh, going into uh, the COVID pandemic last year, February 2020, when cash was roughly high 20s in, in large in large cap core. We were net sellers for several months prior to that point as growth was decelerating, valuations were going ever higher. So we were net sellers, cash was cash was being raised. Within three weeks and the market was going down, we had that cash available to us to put to work. In our equity strategy, it was fully invested. In large cap core, it got down to roughly 10, 11, 12% cash. So it is very important that it's, that it's there, it's available, it's liquid. Yeah, I think it's an asset that we manage, right? I mean, cash is an asset in the portfolio. We don't allocate to it. We're completely market agnostic. We have no opinion. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, but we're not trend followers or, or trend aware. We are mean reversionists, which is to say that it's just math. Math for every individual security in the portfolio or on our watch list. The math tells us when a security meets our criteria because it's growing, it meets our criteria. And for those that do meet our criteria, the math tells us when it's fairly valued, when it's beyond fairly valued and we might want to trim our holding or when it is undervalued and we might want to add to an existing holding or perhaps establish a new one. We don't come at this with an opinion We come at this one company at a time based solely on the math. And cash is an asset in the portfolio. We do manage it. It just so happens that right now, cash is yielding virtually zero. But we are aware of our options for where to place cash, but we're not gonna get a negative return on a two week T-bill, right? I mean, a three-month T-bill is yielding less than the money market feature in, in our clients' accounts. And so that's where we are. But a year and a half ago, that is not where we were. We were generating two, two and a half percent on our cash position because we were rolling treasury bills or we were investing in government-backed, government-security money market funds because they were higher yielding than the money market fund that was default to the accounts our clients are in. We're mindful of this. And I think the one thing also to add is it must be safe. I mean, that's the cash is there again for a reason. And we saw that um, prior to the financial crisis where you had money market funds investing in high yield cash securities, asset backed securities. That's not what you wanna put your cash in to earn the incremental yield. The yield, like you said, is not necessarily important to us as much as the cash is available. Yeah, I'd say you even saw that during COVID a little bit. Uh, I had somebody ask me the other day, why not park it in some of these 
short-term ETFs that basically act like a cash vehicle. But if you just looked at how those things traded during COVID, they didn't trade how you would want cash to trade. We've worked really hard to get cash to where it is today uh, so that we have the opportunity to buy low. We have tried to sell high and now we have the cash to buy low. You don't want to risk that capital that you have worked so hard to preserve. That's not to say that those short-term ETFs are gonna go belly up or anything like that, but they weren't a cash substitute. They went down. Correct, they weren't a cash substitute when push came to shove. Right, that's a great point, Ben. It's so important that the cash be available, be liquid, and have principal protected. It's more important for us to have the principal available than what the return on that principal might be. And I had a conversation the other day. I think we've all been having lots of conversations about cash lately. (laughs) And by the way, side note to advisors out there or to clients who are listening to this, if we can help you understand why we do what we do, please call us. We're happy to have this conversation. We're having them pretty regularly, which is why we're addressing it right now. But the point that I wanted to make about a conversation I had last week to somebody who was, I won't say pushing back, but just wanting to understand the cash position. I said, if we didn't have that cash position in your portfolio last March of 2020, when we were committing that cash aggressively, would you have sent it to us? And the the answer came back with a chuckle, probably not. (laughs) So, That's why there's cash in the portfolio. Okay, let's move on briefly from this topic, still on what's going on inside the tandem portfolio. If you come to us using a UMA or the Castle Tandem Fund, ticker T-A-N-D-X, bear with us because we're gonna talk about something that's not pertinent to you for just a moment. But if you come to us in a true SMA, whether it's in large cap core equity or mid cap core, we do what is called transitioning the portfolio. When a new account is incepted, we pay prices we think are reasonable to pay, and we will incept that portfolio the way we would incept a portfolio of our own money. We transition it to a tandem portfolio. If there is a significant cash contribution or cash withdrawal, we don't push a button and rebalance. We transition that inflow or outflow in a way that makes sense by paying or receiving prices that we think are logical in the moment. Ben, you are active in overseeing the transition portfolio. Jordan, you are active in trading the transition portfolio. So it might just be fun for a moment to discuss what we're seeing at the transition level. How long is it taking to transition a portfolio? How long does it normally take to transition a portfolio? So who wants to have at that? Sure. I'll go ahead and start with that. And Jordan, by all means, hop in at, a, at any point. Uh, I'll start with what's normal. Normally, it takes three to six months to transition a portfolio. Uh, a lot of that can happen quickly up front as we're buying names that are attractively valued and, and that our model is saying is, is good to go. And then the six months is really filling out some of those positions that are less attractive when the, when the portfolio opens or when the account is open with us. Right now, it's taking every bit of those six months, and it's taking even a little bit longer in just two or three names. Can we speak to that for just a second? That we're not dollar cost averaging, right? We're buying individual companies at prices that are reasonable to pay. Correct. Some of them are really easy to buy right at the outset. They represent good value. Some of them are harder to accumulate, right? Correct. We will buy, you'll see in a new account that we might buy the same name on the first three days that the account is with us. Then it might take us 
six, seven, eight months to buy a name that is currently expensive three times because we're waiting for that name to present a more attractive opportunity to get into it. Thank you. So getting back to sort of what what changes that speed, because right now we're outside of the normal. It's taking every bit of those six months. It's not taking three months. Um, it's taking six and sometimes even longer in some names. It really depends upon volatility and opportunity within individual names, including valuation. So it sort of makes sense where we are right now because valuations are high and volatility is really low. Uh, in an environment like 2017, when there was just absolutely no volatility, it was taking us well over that six month time frame. But that worked for us because in the beginning of 2018, as soon as volatility picked up, we had the opportunity to put a lot of cash to work very quickly. Jordan, you were on the trading desk as a newbie in the depths of COVID. You and Ben were manning the desk for an insane number of hours. This isn't like that, right? Right, right. (laughs) Ben, to your point, I would say Opportunities are taken on an individual basis, like you mentioned, and earnings season actually provides a lot of opportunity to transition new accounts at a quicker rate, right? So some holdings may pull back on the back of earnings that we've been waiting to trade down to a more attractive entry price. So it doesn't have to just trade down, though. Earnings also gives the company the ability to grow into their valuation. So it's not when we talk about things being expensive, it's not that the only way to get unexpensive is by selling off. It's just a point that I wanted to make because a lot of the time I think when people think of expensive, they think of a pullback having to happen. Okay, I think that was a great topic. Let's move on to what's happening in the market beyond tandem portfolios. And I'm gonna ask somebody to speak to whether or not we're actually invested in the market. But before we jump in, I've got one more thing I wanna read. I find this amazing, um, and I want to give a shout out to Ben for the timeliness of this. In the February 18th, 2020 edition of Notes from the Trading Desk, yes, I said February 18th. February the 19th was the last all-time high for the S&P 500 pre-COVID. Ben shared this nugget with us. He said, according to the American Association of Individual Investors, cash allocations have only been lower three times, which were all met with 20 plus percent declines. Because he was so astute in pointing that out a day before the market peaked, he revisited this topic on July 12th of this year to point that out, to give himself a pat on the back and to go further and say, today, cash allocations are now only surpassed by the four periods of time just mentioned. Again, each of those periods were eventually met with at least a 20% decline. So that's where we find ourselves in the world, with one of the five lowest cash allocations in retail investor accounts. So let's start with, are we invested in the market and see where we go from there? Absolutely not. We're invested in, in a portfolio of individual companies. Um, And those companies, they grow revenues, they grow earnings, they grow cash flows on their own merit. Now, will the prices of those companies, will the share prices fluctuate short term with the market? Absolutely. But over the longer term, if they're growing revenues, growing earnings, growing cash flows, they should increase in price um, regardless of what the overall market is doing. One of the things that I was actually taking a look at over the past few days, because earnings season is just wrapping up. And right now, S&P earnings, it 
appears that they're going to be, you're looking at 90% earnings growth over last quarter, Q2 of last year. So year over year growth. Our companies are at 39% earnings growth. So significantly less than the S&P 500. But if you go back and you look at Q2 of last year and the depths of COVID, when in Q2 we were shut down for most of that quarter, S&P earnings were down 31%, sales were down 9%, our core holdings, earnings were down 6%. The sales of the core holdings were up one, which is fascinating to me. Our companies did not act like the market in the depths of COVID. On the flip side, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, they also haven't acted the same in this recovery. No, they're, they're more stable. That's sort of what we started the whole conversation with at the start of the podcast. Our companies tend to just be more stable. I mean, shoot, we had companies that went up in price through all of COVID. We sold Hormel at a price <laughs> during the middle of COVID that is higher than it is today. Spam was a COVID beneficiary. Yeah, so <laughs> we're not invested in the market. And names, individual names within our portfolio do not always behave like the market either. I would like to just add, because Billy was sharing with us how we behaved in the depths of COVID and how we've behaved since, the market is insane. The first quarter um, ended March 31st, had the highest 12-month return for the S&P 500 in, I think, 30-plus years. It It was insane. And the 12 months ended June 30, we're right on its heels. I mean, the rate of gain is unprecedented. And of course, we're not participating to the extent the market is on the upside. We never do. Well, I shouldn't say never, but in 30 years of data, we kind of know who we are, right? We capture hopefully about three quarters of the upside and maybe a half of the downside. And that's just who we are, right? But one of the lessons that my mentors taught me, and this is not sexy, but I think it's good practice with money. The first rule to managing money for other people is to stop losing it, right? If, if, if you go down 50%, you got to go up 100. If you only go down 25%, you only have to go up 33. Which would you rather have to face, right? So great backdrop, Billy. Thank you. Uh, that gives us a sense of we're not in the market. Um, and we behave very differently. Ben or Jordan, I'd be curious to know what the model is telling us right now, what this math machine that we referred to when talking about what's going on inside of our portfolios might be telling us more broadly. Anything? Yeah, I think the model's giving some interesting signals right now. It's telling us that, generally speaking, things are expensive. Our core holdings and our watch list are as expensive as they've basically ever been. Um, the average stock in our universe is about twice as far from its mean. And we were talking about mean reversion, about how things revert back to their mean. The average stock in our universe right now is about twice as far from its mean as it was prior to COVID. So things are more expensive today than they have been in, in quite some time. One thing that's a little different today than has been historically is the sheer amount of liquidity that's sloshing around the system right now. The Fed has just pumped so much money into it. So some people say that those valuations are justified. Uh, And perhaps the Fed has built a system that minimizes volatility and minimizes downturns and things like that. I just don't think that I'd bet the farm on it. Fair enough. Do you have a farm to bet? I'm just curious. (laughs) No. Okay, good. Good Easy easy bet to make. (laughs) (laughs) Elaine and I were having a conversation about this earlier today, as a matter of fact. Expensive markets um, are more susceptible to larger declines, but large declines do not come about solely because a market is expensive, at least not 
regularly. Markets can stay expensive for a lot of reasons. So we are not forecasting anything here, right guys? No. We I mean, like our names. Absolutely. And the, the catalyst, when there typically is a correction, it's something you do not see coming. Like COVID. Like COVID. <laughs> or Powell beginning taper talks in 2018 that sent markets 20% lower. It's just that it's more susceptible when it's extended to the upside than when it has extended itself to the downside, right? Correct. That's the point of thing of, of valuations being stretched here. Not that they have to recoil tomorrow because we said so. They don't. But they're more susceptible to that. And that is why this discipline that we follow practices patience, right? So, okay, I'm curious to know. We're not forecasting anything. We're not predicting anything. But what would a pullback look like to us? How big of a pullback in our names would we need to see to more aggressively add or incrementally add to what we have? Is that a fair question? Can we quantify it that way? It is, and I think one, it goes back to us also not being the market. And these, we do own individual companies. So what might be a 5% pullback in the market or a 5% pullback in an individual company is much different for XYZ than a 10% pullback in ABC, whatever it is. Um, it's not uniform across the board. So it's very hard to say, oh, we need a 5% pullback and this amount of cash gets put to work. Um, it's, it's, very, it's, it's driven by each company, each company's fundamentals and their valuations. That being said, though, you can look at it company by company and you can get a feel for companies specifically. How far would company XYZ need to pull back for us to add money to it or take a position? And there are a handful of names that are maybe 5 10% away from being able to have money introduced to the stock or money be added to the stock. But that doesn't mean that the names are going to even pull back that right now. So I don't want to catch you off guard, but Jordan, you had mentioned to me this notion of rolling pullbacks as opposed to just having a broad one in the market. There are there are pockets of it that, although we're not invested in the market, in the short run, we certainly are directionally influenced by the market. Billy, I think you actually touched on it in your recent observations. We're just seeing very rapid rotations in markets right now, whether it be from growth to value, even intraday. You're seeing some particular sectors hold up quite well. Mega cap tech continues to outperform, healthcare, real estate. You're seeing a divergence, and I think that we'll sort of get into this in a bit, with sectors that aren't working. Energy, materials, staples are not particularly working well. And you're also seeing it in some of the more speculative areas of the market as well. The SPAC complex, most SPACs are trading back down around $10, which is NAV, if they haven't SPAC'd. And those that have de-SPAC'd are actually trading below. <laughs> I'm sorry, what does de-SPAC mean? <laughs> to use SPAC as a verb. Uh, companies that have, SPACs that have acquired Unspacked? another company, that have de-SPAC'd or unspacked. <laughs> are trading below $10. So that complex has taken a huge hit. I'm too old. <laughs> I don't even know what despacking means, but you're seeing it too in in the IPO ETF as well. That ETF is flat for the year while the s and is up 19% on the year. The ARC complex is flat to up 2%. See what I think is interesting about the uh, 
the rolling pullbacks is so much of it seems to be related. And Billy, maybe you can sort of nail this point down better than I can. But it seems like recently one thing that we've sort of seen is this sort of more defensive tone in the market. I mean, you're seeing utilities outperform, you're seeing REITs outperform, you're seeing bonds do well as yields have dropped lower. And so you're sort of getting this defensive tone. You're seeing the dollar start to perform a little bit better than it has been uh, throughout much of last year. Uh, it seems to sort of be finding solid ground. And all of this is in the face of this massive monetary experiment that we're in right now with the Federal Reserve. And so I think that there are other pockets of the market where our home, which is U.S. equities or just U.S. assets in general, are starting to feel pretty good for not just Americans, but for the rest of the world as well. What I've I've discussed before with, with you guys is what this reminds me of is a lot of 2018 and going into Q4 of 2018, when you saw U.S. assets, U.S. equities specifically, continue to go higher and higher and higher while the rest of the world, emerging markets, fall apart well before U.S. equities ever fell. You're seeing high yield spreads. Those have started to creep higher. Those bottomed in July, July 2nd, I believe. Those have continued to go higher even through this past week as the S&P has, has made higher higher highs. Um, you're seeing these divergences throughout the market. As you mentioned, the, the safe sectors, the utilities, the REITs, those have definitely benefited by a flattening of the yield curve. Even tech, which is seemingly safer than it once was. Is it sort of a barbell thing going on where you've got the, the aggressive growth and the defensive sectors both attracting money? Absolutely, because if you're looking at the 10-year, and the 10-year's falling, one idea is that growth is future growth is expect, expected to fall. So you want to go into, you would theoretically go into those names that can continue to grow the beneficiary of, of that trade. Those two have been long correlated. For years. Yields absolutely. the FANG complex have long been correlated. I think one other thing I'd like to point out sort of that's going on in the market right now is that given that the S&P just closed at another all-time high, to have the VIX be as elevated as it is right now sort of hints at there's sort of being a fearful undercurrent in the market. Uh, I don't know if you guys have... The VIX is thoughts. the fear gauge. Mm-hmm. The higher it goes, the more nervous the market is purported to be. Yeah. And it's, a- it's unusual that it rises as the value of the S&P rises. Typically, they work inversely. Right? Correct. I looked at uh, VIX levels while the S&P is at all-time highs, and really the only time the VIX has been this high while the S&P is setting all-time highs is throughout the late 90s leading up into the tech bubble and then just prior to the financial crisis as well. So you're sort of getting this eerie signal from the VIX as well. I love talking about these macro things. I think they're fascinating. I will remind our listeners they have nothing to do with how we manage money. (laughs) (laughs) But they are fascinating, and we certainly have opinions about them. So risk is elevating, or at least the VIX is elevating, as the S&P 500 continues to hit all-time highs. I think today was its 47th record close for the year. crazy. Um, Mind-boggling. We've got a lot of other things going on in the world, and I really want to get to some of Jordan's fun facts. But... I'm curious to know what companies are saying today. I think it's always interesting. I remember leading up to the financial crisis, how companies were giving us one picture of the world, while analysts and the stock market were giving us a very different picture of the world. So what are we hearing from our companies or companies in general? 
it really depends by sector, um, obviously. Uh, but the one big thing that is you're, you're, you're hearing companies talk about is inflation. I mean, inflation, the number of mentions, FactSet just came out with some calculation of the percent increase of the mentions of inflation. It was over some thousands percent over the previous quarter. It was, it was wild. Essentially, everyone is talking about it. And you're seeing inflation really affect consumer staples. Clorox, a name we do not own, came out and essentially had to guide down. What was it? Ben and Jordan, I mean, they guided down, I think, 25% from $7 a share estimated over the next four quarters to $5. Yeah, I mean, the stock Um, took it poorly. I mean, that, though, to me, is the perfect example of the -the in-the-moment reaction by investors. You couldn't find Clorox wipes. Clorox sold five years' worth of wipes in a quarter last year. Of course that can't be repeated. They pulled earnings so far forward on at least some of their product What's line, interesting right? though with Clorox is that their sales did not guide down the way their earnings did. It's costs that are impacting them. I thought I had a good point there. <laughs> no, you did have a good point, but a lot of it is, is, is are their input costs. You're yeah. seeing a thousand basis points of margin compression and that is unheard of. You're seeing, that, is, that is wild. You're seeing producer prices way outpace that of consumer prices in the various indices. And so it's clear that margin compression is on the mind at the very least of a lot of companies out there. Is it materializing yet? See, I I feel like it still hasn't even fully materialized. We just got through a good earnings season. You saw a lot of companies actually guiding higher. Um, What I think has been interesting is in the last couple of weeks though, really since really in the last week, you've seen as COVID fears have started to ramp up some, You've seen companies start talking about slowdowns again. Correct. Beckton Dickinson. Beckton Dickinson. Uh, I think Southwest came out today and said that they're not going to be profitable in the third quarter now because cancellations are rising. And this Uh, is just, sorry to interrupt, but this is just a local anecdote. I I was talking to someone who runs events at one of the bigger hotels here, and they're starting to get worried because they're seeing big corporations starting to cancel events over the next two quarters because of these fears just had it happen to us we were scheduled to speak at a regional event in september for one of our partner firms and we got the phone call today it's off you're seeing it as well in credit card spending data too seeing it in airline spend retail and restaurant spend is all meaning it's falling off that's right yeah i think jp morgan chase came out with some numbers that said restaurant spend is really starting to level off but i think that uh travel is dropping, I mean, hard. Does this manifest itself as simply a decline in sales or do some of the insane prices that we've been seeing, like the cost of an airline ticket is crazy. Are they going to correct? Are they going to fall in response to this lack of demand? I think some of this, it's only time will tell. It's hard to tell if the demand is running out. All the pent-up demand, we all rush to book our vacation, that is starting to go away? Or if prices are the cause of people now not taking that extra trip? The cost to go away, whether it be to get your hotel and your flight, is through the roof. Um, and at some point, you can't keep paying that. There, there is a breaking point. It'll be interesting to see what that breaking point is. You know is. what I think is sort of interesting on the inflation front? Is that uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, it being transitory and people were pretty excited about 
the inflation print earlier this week because it suggested that it was leveling off some on a month over month basis. Uh, but you're actually starting to see the markets price into inflation swaps. They're starting to expect higher inflation throughout 2022 and 2023, which does not suggest that it's transitory. It suggests that the market is actually bracing itself or starting to at least believe that that there could be inflation out there. And you're continuing to see supply chains be disrupted as well. I mean, China is closing ports. That's going to really disrupt supply chains. Semiconductors, the lead time on a semiconductor is at all-time highs right now. 20 weeks is the gap. So you're seeing supply chain disruptions continue. I think Expeditors, a company we own, management, talked about supply chain issues not going away in the near term. So, of course, that will feed through to the consumer. As Just to be clear, that sort of benefits Expeditors right. to a certain extent, right? right. I mean, they're a, they're a logistics company. They get to pass that cost Listener, along. we own Expeditors International. <laughs> <laughs> and charge higher rates for it. Right. One thing that I would just like to point out as somebody who grew up in the 70s and then studied economics, what I don't know if we see, I don't have a firm grasp on this or not, but inflation really takes root when we expect inflation. When our behavior is dictated by our expectation of the future. So if we think that these absurd prices we are paying now will likely be lower in the future, we defer that purchase, right? But as soon as we believe that prices only rise, we buy now because there's no advantage to buying later because our behavior has changed. I don't know where we are in that, but I just thought I'd throw that out. No, I think that that's a good point. I actually looked at Google search trend data, and it's ironic. Our last tandem talk was in May, and I think we were talking a lot about commodity super cycle in May and inflation. Google searches for inflation topped out in May. You also saw lumber top out in May, which was being mentioned on all the nightly news, how crazy lumber prices have gone. Since then, they're down 70% from the highs. So you're seeing search trend data for inflation come down as commodities have come down and as yields have come down with them. One thing just to remind our listeners of is that commodities trade in dollars. And so as the dollar strengthens, which it has been doing of late, um, pick your reason why, but the fact of the matter is the dollar is strengthening against most major currencies. That tends to bring commodity prices down for us and elevate them for the rest of the world, just as an aside. So Jordan, what I hear you suggesting is that we are still in the place where we expect prices to likely fall going forward, not continue to rise, or did I mischaracterize that? I would say a lot of commodities have already taken quite a hit. Uh, Lumber is down big, food commodities, soybeans, corn are all getting hit, some uh, industrial commodities like copper as well as getting hit to a certain extent, which could be a result of a strengthening dollar. So I think you've sort of seen that trade already occur somewhat. Housing seems to be slowing at least. I won't say falling by any stretch of the imagination, but rate of increase seems to be on the wane, right? When lumber is trading at $1,500 a board board foot, foot. It's pretty expensive to build a house when you have that, those lumber prices. So, again, at a, at a certain point, 
the price increase is going to impact the consumer can actually afford. Yeah. And I think you've seen that in in housing, specifically new home sales, which which topped out back in March or April of this past what, year. What was very different about this price increase versus the 70s, which I remember, is the rate of increase, right? In the 70s, pers- inflation was persistent. It just kept going higher. Here, it's just like, wow, that just ripped higher. And so we got to the point where we're just not going to pay that anymore a whole lot faster than we have in previous inflationary cycles. One last thing on the sort of inflation topic, Jordan, you've sort of been talking to me about this recently, and I think it's an interesting point that you've been making, is that people talk about it being transitory. They're not talking about prices dropping. They're just talking about the acceleration of prices leveling. Right, right. I think transitory tends to be misused sometimes. I think people believe that price increases are temporary, although the price increases are going to remain the same. The 9% increase at Chipotle is going to remain in place. They're not going to hit you where you live. They're they're not going to reduce prices by 9%. Price is permanently higher. Price is permanently higher. The percentage increase is temporary. That's The rate of change will be less and less. But we will live in a world of higher prices. So, let's just throw this out there. Let's say Chipotle loses sales and feels the need. They, They notice that George's not getting lunch three times a week anymore. They decide to cut their prices do we have transitory deflation i don't know i just feel like prices are a lot stickier to the downside than they are you mean they don't go down as as easily as they go up correct i mean it's it's sort of uh sort of like the opposite of wages wages tend to be sticky to the upside people tend to not get raises at the same pace at which inflation that's why real earnings has actually been decelerating or declining for for months now and so I think that you sort of have that effect on the other side of the coin to where prices are probably not as likely. I don't think Chipotle is likely to drop back down to previous prices. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anything more on the global macro front that needs to be discussed or have we touched all our pearls of wisdom? I think we got it. Then let's move on to the new topic. You've all been given fair warning. It doesn't mean you you heeded the warning. but. I think it would be fun to go out with just sort of our one big thing. The one thing that's front of mind, I can imagine that for Ben, it might be Alabama has started fall football practice. (laughs) Um, Billy has got to be about the depleted Ravens wide receiving core. Um, They drop like flies. They do drop like flies. (laughs) (laughs) They drop like it's hot. Um, But seriously, any topic that's on your mind, Billy, can I start with you? The one big thing that I'm looking at, and it's a, it was an interesting statistic by Bank of America recently, are the sheer amount of flows into global equities. The first half of 2021 was a, a record amount of inflows into global equities. And they said, if Bank of America stated, if we stay on this pace throughout the year, 2021 will be a bigger inflow than the past 20 years combined. <laughs> which is absolutely staggering. The amount of money that is out there and finding its its way into the equity market. Um, or not just the equity market, all assets, all financial assets. You know, the one thing that will be interesting to see is if the flows can continue. 
what that's and what the the rate of change of those flows might be when somebody uh, some of the stimulus may or may not fall off in the near future. Billy, that's fascinating about flows. I got a couple things I'd like to add. These are not my one big things, but I'm allowed to comment on yours because it's my game. <laughs> one of the things that has been written about, I, I read a great article in the Saturday Journal maybe three weeks ago, is the wide uh, use of these asset allocation models that firms are really pushing. And we know from past market cycles that as markets go ever higher, passive strategies typically outperform active strategies. And so the number of people participating in these passive strategies following these passive models, these allocation models, they're all in the same thing. And so on the way up, it has a compounding effect because there are record flows going into the same things. But on the way down, it has a similar compounding effect because everybody's getting out of the same thing. For this piece of the pie that we manage, we have a relatively low correlation to these other things. That is by design. So I just want to throw that out. The second thing I wanted to comment about flows, and you said any asset classes is benefiting from this. Ann and I were recently touring some galleries. Charleston has a wonderful art community, and some of the galleries are really fun. In fact, they do a thing called the Art Walk, where they serve you wine if you just cruise around all the galleries on a Friday afternoon. And it's fun. And you see some interesting things. Every gallery we walked into, we were greeted by smiling faces with stacks of art bubble-wrapped to be shipped. They are experiencing record sales. If you can put out there in listener land, paintbrush on canvas, (laughs) get to it. And the larger the piece of canvas you're inclined to tackle, the more money you're going to make by doing it. Because the demand for art is just insane now. Okay. Billy, thank you for your one big thing. I hope I didn't steal your show, but that was fascinating about flows. Who's next? I can go next. You Uh, go next. My one big thing was going to be the the transitory discussion that we had earlier, but I can pivot. I read over the weekend in the journal that student loan payments are now extended through the end of January. This will be the third time that they've extended this benefit. I feel like it's not talked about a lot, but it impacts 43 million people and $1.5 trillion worth of debt. I think they mentioned it's estimated to save consumers $5 billion a month, uh, and the average payment is $400 a month for these borrowers. So it really is freeing up a ton of cash and it's not a direct check, but it is real money that consumers are saving that they are spending elsewhere. So I think once this benefit, if student loan payments ever do resume, I think that you will see a serious drag on consumer spending. You could say the same thing about rent payments. Yeah. And that hits an important demographic right? It does. It's the um, millennials that have the overwhelming burden of student debt. And it's your generation that is spending right now. So short-term benefit, Mm -hmm. long-term uncertain, right? Right. Thank you. Ben? I think the one big thing that I'm sort of watching or keeping an eye on is, is China. Bill, you were talking about how that's these, a big thing. <laughs> yeah, it is a big thing. Bill, you were talking about I didn't how mean literally. <laughs> yeah. 
You're talking about how this market really reminds you of 2018, going into Q4 of 2018. And I think that there's some some similarities between what happened in the summer of 2015 as well, and not just because it was during the summer. But China recently has really been cracking down on a couple different industries. And you can really see it in uh, education stocks and a lot of their internet and tech names. And they've vowed to keep up these regulatory crackdowns. And you're starting to see it bleed not just into their markets, but into global markets as well. I think that a good number of global bond funds underperformed their benchmarks of late because of their exposure to Chinese debt. So you're starting to see this Chinese crackdown sort of make its way into other markets. And I, I think what happened in 2015 is that China sold off. I think Chinese indices were down 30, 40%. And our market just didn't really care until it did. And then it sent us down 11% in, in just a couple of days. And so I think that that's something that's just worth keeping on your radar. Terrific. That was a good thing. Thank you, guys. I, I think that's an interesting segment. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoyed listening to what was on your mind. Um, I'd like to wrap this up with my one big thing, and that is patience. You know, we talk about what this reminds us of, and it's like this, and it's not like that. And I'll tell you, I've been doing this for 36 plus years, and this market reminds me of nothing. I've never been in a world like this where we don't have to pay for anything, and we're being given money. And I don't know how long this is sustainable. I suspect for a very long time. I don't know how it ends. I suspect it will be very badly. And so I think the one thing that we would all benefit from is not being caught up with in recency, but rather think more broadly than today, tomorrow, or the next day. Have a plan, have a discipline. Remember, the last dollar you make on the way up is the first dollar you make on the way down. So you can scramble to pick up every penny you can get your hands on in front of the steamroller, but the steamroller is still coming. So get out of its way with perhaps more modestly full pockets, right? Have patience. This will not last forever. You are not missing the last great opportunity There are certainly opportunities to put capital to work. We do it every day. But you don't have to do it indiscriminately. Be prudent. Be patient. Find opportunities as they come, not just because you're afraid you're missing one. That's it for one big thing. I hope you all enjoyed that. We really do sincerely appreciate your listenership. As I mentioned at the start, you are hearing this because you either came to us through our website or SoundCloud, but we are excited, moderately so, to say that it is likely that in the future you will be hearing us from just about any source you want to get your podcasts from. I would like to give a tip of the hat to the producer of this podcast and the voice of Tandem on all of our recorded offerings, please remember that we write the Tandem Report, Observations, and Notes from the Trading Desk, and Margaret is the voice you hear in the audio version of all of those. She is the producer of this podcast and the previous ones. She has been very aggressive in trying to broaden 
the distribution or the places that this podcast is available. So I would like to acknowledge her work in doing that. I would certainly like to acknowledge our Director of Communications, who nearly all of you know, Elaine Natoli. This tandem talk is her baby. Congratulations to Elaine for creating something from where nothing existed. This is exciting. This is fun for us to do. I hope it's half as fun for you folks to listen to. This is also Julia Hoffman's first participation in second, where you, well, you might have observed the first. Julia is new to Tandem. She joined us in May. Uh, She is Elaine's assistant in our communication effort, and she's doing a terrific job. We're being observed today by the newest member of our team on the investment operations side, Annie Klopstock, but I hope that you all have enjoyed this as much as we have enjoyed bringing it to you. Until next time, thank you. Tandem Talk is produced by Margaret White, directed by Elaine Natoli, with music written and performed by Lauren Crepanzano. Nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security, nor construed as financial or investment advice. Tandem Investment Advisors, Inc. does not represent that the securities, products, or services discussed on this podcast are suitable for any particular investor. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please consult your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. All past portfolio purchases and sales are available upon request.